Welcome once again to Grace Covenant. We're glad that you're here. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn to Acts chapter 4 for part 2 of our mini-sermon series, looking at the life of the early church. Let me remind us that this is God's Word, that it has spoken to us, that we might hear it and receive it by faith. Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word, believed. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name Did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by Him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God, To listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And they had further threatened them, and when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. And when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, 
they lifted their voice together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Will you join me in prayer? Lord, we are indeed gathered here this morning, yielding our hearts, asking You to speak, asking You to sear in our hearts Your truth, asking You to renew us, stir our faith, reignite our passion for Your kingdom and seeing it go forth. Come, Holy Spirit, give us eyes that we would see You at work in our lives, that we would see You at work in our community, at work in our classrooms, at work in our offices. Holy Spirit, come and give us ears so that we could hear Your voice in the midst of a noisy world that seeks to consume our imaginations. God, would You give us ears that we would hear Your voice and follow You. And last, Lord, we ask that you would give us hearts that are transformable, hearts that are moldable, hearts that are willing to receive that which you desire to produce in us and through us. So take our lives, Lord. Take this morning and lead us out as we depart. We ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people agree. Amen. So here we are. We're picking up partway through a pretty phenomenal scene in the life of the early church. If you weren't here last week, let me catch you up a little bit. Peter and John, as was their custom, was custom in the life of the early church. They were going in to the temple of the Lord to pray. It was 3 o'clock in the afternoon. It was the hour of prayer. So every day the church would gather together and go into the temple and have a formalized time of prayer. On their way in this particular day, there was a beggar who had been there the day before and the day before and the day before that and the week before that and the year before that and the decade before that and the decade before that and the decade before that. Every day, his family would come and sit him in the dust of the ground so that he could ask for charity, 
He'd ask for gold or silver so that he could decrease his burden on his family, on his community. Peter and John take notice of him on this particular day. On this particular day, he reached out and asked for help from Peter, asked for help from John, not having any idea what God had in store. Got a little silver, maybe even some gold. Peter says, I don't have any gold and I don't have any silver, but what I do have, freely give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise and walk. And as Peter commands, he then engages in the obedience with him. He reaches down and he lifts this guy up. And immediately the scripture says, the physician Luke tells us that his legs became strong, that his ankles and his feet became strong. And he could stand. More than that, he could walk. More than that, he could leap about dancing and leaping and praising God. And so the party, as it should, moves from outside the kingdom to inside the temple, right? From outside the temple to inside the temple. And everybody and their brother is going buck wild. They've never seen anything like this in a long time. And so there's a crowd gathering. And so as that crowd gathers, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, begins to preach, begins to teach, begins to explain to them exactly how this miracle has occurred. How does God take somebody who lives in the dust of the ground and gives them the opportunity to dance on that dust? How does that happen? How does God take someone from a low position and lift them up? So Peter begins to preach the gospel to the Jews that were gathered in the temple courts, to the Gentile converts who were there. So Peter begins to preach the second great sermon of the early church. And that's the context where we pick up. Peter is, you know, headlong into his sermon. He's calling out all their sin. They're getting convicted of their sin and their misery. And as Peter's preaching, there's also an opposition gathering. That's where we are in Acts 4.1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests, the priests of the temple, the Levites, and the captain of the temple guards, that's the military or the police in that moment, and then also the Sadducees come upon them. Who are the Sadducees? The Sadducees in our culture are oftentimes the 1%. Okay? You've seen a lot of this going on in the world today. They're the rich, they're the happy, they're the comforted, and in their day, they didn't even believe in an afterlife. This is one of their cardinal principles, okay? They do not believe that there's another life after this one because they don't want to. This life is great for them. They have all the power. They have all the authority. They have all the finances and all the comfort they want. In our culture, these are the people who take exotic vacations, eat at all the best restaurants. It's really hard to talk to these people about the sorrow of this life because they've anesthetized themselves so significantly with all the pleasures of life. They don't really want to even consider that there's something after this or that there's an accountability for what they have. 
That's the Sadducees. They don't believe in a life to come. And so they're gathered up, and of course, Peter's dancing on their nerve, right? What's their one big issue in life? There is no other life. There is nothing else. It's just now. And Peter's here declaring that Jesus Christ is alive. And that not only is he alive, he's ascended. You guys killed him. Huh. He's alive. He appeared to us. And more than that, he rose up into heaven and governs and will one day come back and hold you accountable. The Sadducees are losing their minds at the thought that there's an afterlife. This is their one great upset petition. And Peter and the boys are proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Verse 3, And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. One of the things we need to keep in mind is when those who have power are battling with those who don't, when those who have influence are engaged in a warfare with those who don't, those who don't often end up in prison. And so here, that's exactly what happens. The temple guard seizes Peter, seizes John, seizes the unnamed former cripple. Gosh, how'd you like to be known as that for the rest of history? Yeah, you remember the unnamed cripple guy? Yeah, 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 love that dude. Now be him for a second. You spent 40 years of your life clinging to dust, and now you can dance. And now you can walk, and now you can jump. And the first thing your culture and your government does is grab you and chain you to a wall in a dungeon. I'm not so sure I'm into this Christianity thing, right? No, no, no. He's leaping, and he's dancing, whether he's chained to the wall or not. And we'll see that shortly. But anybody who says the Christian life is easy and carefree has never studied the Bible. There is great suffering, but there's great comfort from Christ in our sufferings. And that's what we'll see later on. But those in the power arrested them, threw them in jail because it would be too much of a burdensome to actually judiciously deal with this matter in the evening. We'd have to, you know, light the oil lamps, and that's a waste of resources. Let's just deal with it till tomorrow. Meanwhile, these three guys are unjustly imprisoned, hanging out. Verse 4. But many of those who had heard the word believed. The Holy Spirit had regenerated their hearts, being convicted of their sin and misery, being informed about the gospel, the good news, being preached to them. The Holy Spirit regenerates their hearts and they embrace that which they hated. A day earlier, they would have despised it. Today, they believe and they receive it. The sermon at Pentecost didn't get them, but this one, this one the Holy Spirit does. And then the church grows to 5,000. If you're like me, you go, I don't know, Peter, you're regressing a little bit. You got 3,000 on the first sermon. You only got 2,000 on this one. You want to step up your game a little bit? No, you can see that the gospel is going forth. You can see the move of God amongst his own people. 
Very powerful. Verse 5, The next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem. And with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, those three guys had been high priest before, all of them were gathered together, including the high priestly family. Verse 7, And when they had set them in the midst, who's the them? The they is the Sanhedrin, right? Filled with Pharisees and Sadducees. It's the religious government in Israel, in Jerusalem. And they gather together and they take the three prisoners, Peter and John and this former crippled guy, and they bring them into the midst. It's a term of accusation. This is not a descriptor of location. It's a descriptor of accusation. They are now on trial. That's what's happening. So think courtroom when you see this happening. So they set them in the midst and they inquire. Here's the opening accusation. By what power or by what name did you do this? Isn't that hilarious that that's their opening question? Those of you who were here last week, what was Peter's opening thought? It's not by my power. It's not by my piety that this man was healed. He's already said, and quite convincingly, that Jesus Christ is the one who healed. It's because of Jesus' righteousness. It's because of the 33 years of righteous, obedient life. Jesus' life can be called, as it is in Acts 5, a single act of obedience. Because there was never a moment he was disobedient. Peter's already taught them this. They would have already heard this, but they need it for the record. Hence the courtroom element. Peter filled with the Holy Spirit is going to respond. The accusation, by what power or by what name do you do this? As you study the book of Acts, you're going to begin to realize that this concept of being filled with the Holy Spirit is pervasive start to finish in the book of Acts. You'll see that phraseology over and over and over and over again. Why? What does it signify? Does it signify that miracles are coming? Occasionally. But what it always signifies, and I mean without exception, it always signifies that the declaration of the Gospel is coming. That the man of God or the woman of God is going to speak. That's what it signifies. So when you read, the Holy Spirit is filling someone, be ready for the testimony. Be ready to hear them testify. We'll get to a little bit more of that in a minute. Peter's filled with the Holy Spirit, so he's going to speak. What does he say? He begins, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, can you see the irony? You arrested us and threw us in jail because we healed a cripple. That's what our government is into? Can you feel his outrage? They spent a night in jail. Why? Because God showed mercy to a 40-year-old man. Oh, I can see that's jail-worthy, 
right? Can you feel his outrage? Can you sense the injustice and, and, and the, the lacking of dignity with which they are being treated? Are we being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man? By what man, means this man has been healed? Verse 10, let it be known to all of you. And, and, and Peter wants it to go outside the walls of that room. He wants it to go not just to the powerful. He wants it to go to the nation of Israel. See his language. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. Do you get it? Let it be known in the name of Jesus. Now, let's clarify what Jesus we're talking about. We're not talking about the Jesus of your imaginations. We're not talking about boogeyman Jesus or hippie Jesus or clowns and rainbows Jesus. We're talking about Jesus Jesus. And how does Peter define Jesus Jesus? The one they killed and the one God resurrected. That's the one we're talking about. And you've got to remember that he's in a room full of people who were there when Christ was crucified. We're not talking about an abstract thing that happened decades and decades later, and maybe a couple of them were there, and probably most of them weren't. We're talking about the leadership that had Jesus killed. We're talking about the rulers. Annas, Caiaphas, John, Alexander. These are the men in power when Jesus is crucified. And they're in power now. You killed them is not to be taken with literary license. It's literal. You, guys, you, this council, you put him up on the charge of blasphemy and had him executed in a Roman court according to Roman rule. You did that. That's the Jesus we're talking about. It's not a conceptual, imaginary God. It's not the universe's will. You guys killed him. And God, God, the real God, the true God, the living God, yeah, he brought him back to life and resurrected him. That guy. That's the one we're talking about. The empty tomb guy. By him, this man is standing before you well. Verse 11, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you the builders, which has become the cornerstone. That's the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, right? It's exactly what language Peter's referring to. If you don't think that the Old Testament is part of your Bible, you miss how many times it's being quoted in your New Testament. The Old Testament is essential for us and our understanding because in it we see the promises and exactly what Jesus actually fulfilled. Verse 12, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Fifty years ago, that's not a controversial verse in America. Did you know that? Fifty years ago, maybe even 30 years ago, that verse would get a huge head nod and an outcry of amen. There's no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. Amen. Hallelujah. 
And in our culture, that verse is daily attacked. And those who would cry, Amen, are often marginalized and overlooked. Or outright rebelled against. You know how many liberal scholars have dedicated their whole life to the defeat of that verse? We live in a pluralistic culture that says Allah, Yahweh, Jesus, same deal. The teachings of Confucius, the teachings of Buddha, teachings of Jesus, same deal, different name. What's in a name? Our culture cries. And we must stand up and say that a name encompasses your experience. It encompasses your education. It encompasses your time, your talent, your energy, what you've accomplished, what you've failed. Your name is yours and no other. How many people, if somebody starts using your name to run up debt on your card, care about your name? And who's using it, right? We live in a culture that says your name's not important unless it's affecting your wallet. In which case, you got to go protect your social security number, and then there are companies like LifeLock that are going to keep you secure, and blah, 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 blah. We care about this, but we don't care about it in God's way. As long as it keeps me wealthy and comfortable, I care about my name. What's in a name? Jesus Christ is the only one who died in your place. Is that significant? There's no atonement if Jesus doesn't die on the cross. More than that. If Jesus isn't righteous when he dies, if he isn't a lamb without blemish when he dies, you have no hope of heaven. Did you know that? Jesus Christ is the only one who has secured payment for your debt and put money in the bank in your name. Buddha didn't do that. Buddha died for your sins. Confucius, for all his wisdom, did he die for your sin? What's in the name? Everything. Everything. How does this cripple become well and start dancing in the temple? Jesus. Jesus Christ. Jesus. The real Jesus. Not the Jesus of our imaginations. Not Boogeyman Jesus. 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 Have you ever, you remember about 15, this is older than some of you actually are, 15, 20, 30 years ago, you'd go into a merchant's store and you'd have to ask them, do you take Visa? You remember that? Do you take American Express? You remember? You'd have to ask them what a reasonable currency of exchange was viable for, right? You ever wonder what God's currency is? What's the economics of heaven based on? It's not the dollar. It's not the yen. It's not Visa and it's not American Express. It's perfectly pure blood. It's the only currency God takes. You ever think about that? 
all your ideologies, all your effort, if you come to the point where you say in your heart, my blood might be really good, but is it perfect? No. Well, the moment you stopped having perfect blood, you stopped being able to enter heaven. Because God's righteousness is perfect. And he doesn't dwell in the presence of imperfection. The only currency God takes is perfect blood. And of course, the scripture teaches us that we were born guilty, born with a sin nature. So of course we sin. Of course we're not perfect. It's that mysterious union we have with our forefather Adam, right? What's in a name? Everything. Everything. There's only one name given among men whereby we must be saved. Salvation is of the Lord and no one and nowhere else. And that's what Peter's declaring in the middle of the Sanhedrin, the highest religious court in the world. It's the equivalent today of him walking in and dethroning the Pope. That's what we're talking about. Verse 13, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And this is what they cried out. This is what they said. This is what they all ahummed to. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. So let me ask you, do you smell like Jesus? When you talk, do people instantly recognize that you serve Him as Master? He's your Master. You're His servant. Is your time in the Word so rich, so thick? Is your life so yielded to Him that the people around you know? And that gal, she, she just, it's like being with Jesus, being with her. And many of us would say, well, mercy must be what they would see, right? What's the descriptor that smells like Jesus? according to this text. Is it mercy? Is it timidity? No, it's boldness. They recognize Peter and John as bold and conclude they've been with Jesus. Who who defied them more in their life experience than Jesus? He cleans out their temple. Remember? Boldness is the mark of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. There are other things that come with it, right? The gifts of the Holy Spirit. I don't mean to undermine those. They're real. But in this text, what do the people who are attacking Peter and John see in them that makes them conclude, man, man, these guys are just like Jesus. Boldness. It's the boldness to defy. It's the boldness to speak without oratory skill. They're lowly, uneducated, common fishermen. And they're standing up in the highest court of the land. And they're on the offensive, not the defensive. Do you want to know why we're here? 
Jesus Christ. Whoa, these guys really have been with Jesus. Because they're bold like he was. That's what's happening right here. Verse 14, But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. Every once in a while, when you cuddle up with Scripture, okay, you're going to be given a chance to hear the plots of the enemy. You know we have an enemy, right? You know there's an enemy. There's an adversary. There's someone who has a horrible plan for your life and works tirelessly day in and day out to ruin every moment you have on earth. Did you know that? It's true. And every once in a while, when we lend our ear to the text, we can hear the schemes of the adversary. And we're going to get a great glimpse of his strategies. And the first strategy is denial. Right? Watch verse 14. But seeing that the man who was healed was standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. What do they wish they could do right now? What they really want to do is say, this miracle never happened. There was no miracle. The guy was never crippled. They faked it. It, it was a, a ruse. They sat him here for 40 years every day to convince you. Right? But they got the testimony of the guy standing there in their court. So plan A is gone. You know how many scholars, and I use that in quotes, air quotes, air quotes, how many scholars today have dedicated their lives to discounting every miracle in the Bible? Denial. First plan. Plan A of the enemy. But in this particular case, they couldn't deny it because Cat's standing right there. The dude is there. And he's got a voice. And he can give his own testimony. You don't think your testimony is powerful? Hear me. You don't think your testimony is powerful? Well, I grew up a good kid. I was in a Christian home. I was never a drug dealer, rapist. You know, I, so I don't really have that dramatic testimony of coming to Christ. Like, you know, him and her and that other guy I saw. No, no. God took an enemy and turned him into a servant and friend. Yeah, you have nothing to say, right? You have no testimony of God's mercy being poured out on an enemy. Well, I was never really that bad. Really, you're a blasphemer and a treasonist. And what's the punishment for treason in any culture, in any community, anywhere in the world? It's death, right? Treason. You commit treason. You tell God you can run your life better than he can. Treason. King of the world, let me be king. Have a seat. Treason. Blasphemer. You're a blasphemer. Congratulations. So am I. And you don't think that a treasoner turned servant friend is powerful testimony? You don't think that a blasphemer who now worships and believes is powerful testimony? You're out of your mind. And you're on schedule with the devil's plan. Deny. Deny, deny, deny. But what happens when you can't deny, when the dude's standing right there? What's plan B? Well, let's find out. 15. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, so Peter's out, John's out, former cripples out, and you can picture them huddling up together, right? It's Super Bowl Sunday. Picture all these heads gathered together in the huddle, and they have to figure out what to do. 
they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. It's right there in print. Plan A, deny. Can't use plan A. 17. Let's go for plan B. But in order that it may spread no further. Time out. What's the it? What do they want spread no further? Dancing cripples. That's what they're aligned against. Right? The doctrine of grace they're aligned against. Mercy for the masses. Clearly that should be opposed. Right? For the people of God, they should be clearly opposed to this. Sarcasm fully intended. What's the it that they're so violently against? God reconciling sinners? God fulfilling what He promised? God's power and goodness on display? Yes, but that hurts my pride. Might affect my wallet. Can't be in with that. we got to stomp this out. That's what they're saying. It's exactly what they're saying in this moment. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. Silence is plan B. Did you catch that? Silence is plan B. If you can't deny it, at least get everybody to stop talking about it. When you think of persecution in the life of the church, what do you think of? If you're anything like me, you think of martyrdom. You think of prison. You think of being, you know, exiled. Did you know that you're among the most persecuted people in the world today. Did you know that? The problem with the church today, one of its many, is that it is overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly persecuted. And it's completely unaware. Because the world is very rarely shouting at you to be silent. It's much more politely saying, hush. Shh. We just don't talk about these things. We don't talk about religion here. Do that in your own homes. Do that on your own schedule. Do that in your own lives. Shh. Why do you talk about Jesus so much? Why can't you embrace spirituality in our culture? Do you know that in the Bible, the word spiritual means Holy Spirit, dot, dot, dot? So when people talk about being spiritual, it always makes me giggle a little bit and then cry. Because they're thinking about soul issues without any context of the governance of the dominion of God in those areas. I'm a spiritual person, which means I can cry at a movie? Like, what does that mean to you? What, what is a spiritual person? The Bible says a spiritual person is someone who's indwelled with the Holy Spirit. 
It's not a generic category of emotion, mind, spiritual, blah, 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 blah. No, no, no. In the Scripture, spiritual means the ministry of the Holy Spirit. You are desperately in the middle of persecution. And what's amazing to me, and and, and lots of us should be, that you have no idea. How many of you walked in this morning heavy because of the oppression you feel? You don't. Anybody alarmed at this point? Oh my gosh. I am persecuted. I am in a prison. I'm in a nice, comfortable, plush, anesthetized prison. Because they just politely shh me. If some idiot walked in here with a gun and stuck it to your forehead, and said, do you believe in Jesus Christ? And you say yes, and he's going to pull the trigger and execute you, how many of you would say yes anyway? If you're in Christ, you better. But because there's no gun, because the moment isn't dramatized for you, you think... Well, yeah, I'm a Christian. Everybody knows I'm a Christian. I do good things, and I, I take care of my neighbor's yard when he's gone, and I'm a good person. And the, Our whole culture thinks they're good people. You hear what I'm saying to you? Plan B for the enemy is silence. And one of the great joys of church planting is that you don't have time to be silent. If you don't speak, it's not going to get done. If you don't invite, people ain't coming. You have to speak in church planting. When you see sin in a brother's life, you have to speak. When you see a sister gossiping and it's hurting the fellowship of the church, you have to speak. You have to. Or you'll destroy the thing that you've sacrificed time, money, energy, talent, and everything else to build. One of the problems with the comfortable church today is that they have no idea how persecuted they are. Plan B for the enemy is silence. And man, do we give in to plan B or what? Not in our office, not in our classroom, not in our dorms, not Just have your tiny little Christianity in the tiny little corner of your heart and you'll be fine. Tell that to Peter. Tell that to John when they're in the middle of the courtroom and they're saying, shh, our whole culture is trying to hush you. Did you know that? if they were daring enough to say, shut up! You would rise, wouldn't you? If you're in the middle of a public area and some guy's yelling about how much he hates Jesus, he hates the church, he hates the world, he hates everything, would you not in that moment stand up, rise up, and come back at him? But because they say, shh, and we are polite children taught at the dinner table, 
When mom and dad say, shh, we go, mm-hmm. Our culture just used our politeness as a weapon against us. Did you catch that? How do they recognize that they were with Jesus? Boldness. What's our persecution? Silence. Shh. I call it the hush of the crowd. Shh. Watch them shush Peter. Speak no more to anyone in this name. Verse 18. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. 19. Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. What's he saying? He's saying, I've already figured this one out. It's on you now. When there's conflict between culture and God, I'm on God's team. When there's conflict between culture and God, I speak for God. You judge for yourselves what you want to do. My choice is done. That's what it means to be a Christian. Right? Isn't that Galatians 2.20? For I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. The life I live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. Your life is not your own if you're in Christ. Period. That's not a negotiation to take place. Your life is not your own if you're in Christ. And so your money's not your own. Your time is not your own. Your energy levels are not yours to govern. They're His. You're a servant to a great and wonderful Master. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Right? but that rest is a propelling one. It doesn't mean come here, sit, do nothing. That's not the mark of Christianity. That's not what walking with Christ is about. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. He lives. So Peter knows that he's made his choice. You want me to shush? Sorry. You're not the boss of me. He is. So you better judge. And that question is before you this morning. You must judge whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to this counsel and their decree of silence or to listen to God who commands us to go and make disciples of all nations. And you cannot make disciples without speaking. Amen? For we cannot, says Peter, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And that's the definition of witnessing. It's the definition of giving a testimony. Court of law, witness, speaks about what they've seen and heard. What have you seen and what have you heard and have you ever said it to your neighbor? This week, have you said it to your neighbor, your office mate, your friend, your classmate? That girl downstairs in the dorm you're scared to death to talk to. Have you witnessed? Have you testified about what you've seen and what you've heard, what you've experienced? 21. And when they had further threatened them, that's laughable, right? If Peter's crucified with Christ, what are they going to do? What are they going to take away from him? You're going to put him in jail? Great. You're going to get a whole lot of guards who believe in Jesus. We see that in Acts, right? 
What are you going to do? Kill him? He's in glory. Jesus said himself, right? Don't fear those who can take a sword to your body and hurt you or kill you. Fear the one who can take your soul and throw it in hell. Hell's real. Jesus talks about hell like number three on his top ten list. We cannot speak but what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let him go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all the people were praising God for what had happened. You'd think they'd rejoice because church attendance is going to go up. Right? But they don't because the power's not theirs. The greed is not theirs. The authority is slipping from their grasp. And we love to grasp. 22. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Sorry I led with that one. It should have been a surprise. 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. I love to picture them giggling through that report. They arrested us for healing this guy. Can you believe that? And then they tried to tell us we can't talk. We can't talk. Yeah, we should shush. (laughs) No. So what's the first thing they do? Watch the play on words in 24. When they heard it, they lifted their voices. That should ring in your ears. They lifted their voices together to God and, and prayed and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. These guys knew that opposition was coming. They knew that persecution was coming because the Scripture promised it to them. David sang about this. And so they're gathered together for their now informal community of prayer because it's not the third hour anymore. They're in somebody's living room. And they're gathered together and they're talking about their persecution. They're talking about the plans of their adversaries. And they're praying about the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. Hear this. The doctrine of the sovereignty of God fuels your prayer life. It doesn't replace. It doesn't, you know, it's not against your prayer life. There are many who are like, why pray? God's sovereign. I don't have to pray. Man, you're so far from the heart of the early church. The doctrine of the sovereignty of God fueled their prayer life, which fueled their evangelism. You wonder why you don't share your faith? You're probably not praying for opportunities to share your faith. You're not asking to be given a Holy Spirit boldness and then live out that boldness. Because we're not contemplating what it means that God, in His mercy, has determined to call people to Himself. And that we're just the agency of that. That's all we are. is the agency of, through which the Holy Spirit converts the people around us. That's how it works. So when we come to this moment, they're praising God for persecution. They're lifting their voice up to the One who has mercy for them. 27, and their prayer continues, For truly in this city there were gathered together against Your holy servant Jesus, whom You anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever Your hand and Your plan had predestined to take place. They love the doctrine of the sovereignty of God, and it fuels them. 
It fuels them. So I encourage you to spend time in your life studying and learning what it means that God is sovereign, that God is holy, that God is at work calling redemptively a people for Himself. 29. And now, Lord, look, three quarters of their prayer is spent on who God is. Did you notice that? That is not my prayer life, I confess. Three quarters of their prayer is focused on who God is, celebrating that. And then they're going to come up with a couple of petitions. What are they petitioning for? Man, I want a big car. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants, remember that word is also child or children, grant to your children to continue to speak your word with all boldness. What's their first request? Boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal, and the signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Again, servant could be child or son, Jesus. 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all what? Say it. Filled with the Holy Spirit. And what does filling with the Holy Spirit lead to? Speaking the Word of God with boldness. It's right there in black and white. I'm not making this stuff up. They prayed for boldness. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. So they acted in that boldness that they asked for. So I ask you, do you ask for boldness? Do you ask for God to fill you with the Holy Spirit so that you can speak in His name? And for many of us, we have not because we ask not. True? The Holy Spirit fills us so that we can speak. So don't let your culture, your workplace, your classrooms, your spouses, your children, don't let the people around you hush you lull you into complacency, lull you into plan B, which is silence. So my prayer for all of us is that we would be a people who speak. Amen? Let me pray.